Hello and welcome to another edition of Advancing the Profession with me, Rob Jackson. I'm really pleased today that I'm going to be talking to a good friend and colleague of mine from Toronto, Canada, Pfizer Venzant, as we together investigate equality, diversity and inclusion in advanced level volunteer engagement. Pfizer, I've known for almost eight years now, since we met at a MARVA conference in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I've been really fortunate to work with Pfizer on a number of occasions during the course of the years that we've known each other. If the name's familiar to you as a regular listener of this podcast, that's because Tracy O'Neill and I mentioned Pfizer a few times in the episode where we looked at CVA and credentialing for volunteer engagement. So I'm really pleased to welcome Pfizer to the podcast today. Hello, Pfizer. And would you just spend a few minutes introducing yourself to our listeners who maybe don't know you? Hi, Rob. My name is Faiza Vinzant. And as Rob said, I live in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I am first and foremost a mom of two young boys who are aged four and five, wife of uh, an incredible Black American gentleman. And I also professionally am the executive director for the Council for Certification and Volunteer Administration. And I also work for the YMCA of Greater Toronto as the general manager for volunteer development. That's me. That's me in a nutshell. And I wanted to say, Rob, this is kind of a full circle moment for me. And it's so funny that in, our, in your introduction, you mentioned the MAVA conference eight years ago. Do you remember we went to a Hmong market? Um, yeah, indeed, I do. Chicken feet. Chicken, and we tried chicken feet, right? Yeah. And that was one of the first, uh, that conference for me was it, like, it, there were so many op opposing things happening for me at that conference. I was a, a speaker at that conference, and I remember being mistaken for a hotel staff oh. as I was setting up for my session by two women who had come in early who were quite rude and condescending and, you know, were asking me to fill their water. And that was the experience I had just before getting up to speak as a, as a speaker invited all the way from Canada. But then we had this really cool experience where Heather Camilla took us to this Hmong market. Yeah. And she, it was the first like real authentic conversation that I can remember where she talked about you know, equity and access to volunteering and how she was having such a hard time working with this community because she didn't have lived experience in the community. They were a community that was very much centered around mutual aid. And here she was coming from a very structured, institutionalized volunteer program. And she was grappling with those issues. Yeah. And she talked to me about that. And I just felt like I could breathe. And that was really a starting point for me to just feel comfortable and feel safe talking about these issues. And then we all tried the chicken feet together. <laughs> and, you know, that was just a real, a beautiful shared moment for me. So how, in, how incredible that we're now having this conversation yeah, <laughs> on your from, podcast. From chicken feet in a Hmong market to podcast in just eight years. There's, yeah. a, there's a title <laughs> of a book in there, I guess, really. Um, now I remember that well, because we also had the, the pleasure of, um, our good friend Erin Spink's company uh, and on that trip. And of course, the late, great Susan J. Ellis was with us yeah, as well. Yeah. And it was it was my first overseas gig as a freelancer, that conference. And it was uh, an eye-opening experience, the whole event, 
but but I, that visit to that market particularly sticks in my memory. So I'm pleased you reminded me of that. And um, it was also like for me, it was such a lesson in 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 tourism and in traveling because yeah. I would never ever have come across that market in any other way. Like honestly, like Aaron and I went to the Mall of America, we went to the aquarium, you know, we did the touristy things, but we would never have had that experience had it not been for somebody local saying like, this is this is really how you need to experience the Twin Cities. And I, I completely agree with you for those that, that weren't at the conference and that will be many of you, the, the conference venue was right next to the Mall of America, which is why it was so easy to go to. But this... <laughs> This market, from what I can remember, was was just like in this completely bland, nondescript building in a kind of industrial park a little way away from where we were staying. And then it was one of those experiences where you just walk in through the door into what you think is just like a warehouse building. And it just completely transformed your perspective on, on what that place was. And it was just a a fantastic my regret is I probably couldn't find that place when I'm back in the Twin Cities again but it was yeah. a brilliant brilliant experience yeah. so Pfizer you have done loads and loads of work in those eight years on on a great many things around volunteering but you've particularly carved out a niche that I've seen in speaking about uh, equality diversity inclusion which over here we call EDI in other countries they call DEI we mix the acronym up and I have been very fortunate and consider myself to be very fortunate to have heard you speak and, and read what you've written on those subjects and to be challenged myself by your perspectives on many of those things. So I suppose before we get into looking at EDI in volunteer engagement and advanced volunteer engagement, how do you kind of define that area? How do you, how do you give some kind of scope to it? So for me, there's two ways I experience EDI, DSI, however we want to frame it. You know, as a South Asian woman, one of the ways I experience this work is it's harmful, right? So having mm -hmm. to sit through EDI training with my colleagues when the training is often centered around whiteness or the training is often centered around how to make the dominant culture or white culture understand why this is important is harmful. Like that stuff yeah. that I know, that stuff that I experience. On the other side of it, you know, this work around justice and equity, diversity and inclusion, it's an intentional shift away from these very hierarchical mindsets that exist in charities and not-for-profits. So if we're speaking specifically about advanced volunteer management practice, that is a mindset that has really kept marginalized people systemically omitted from positions of power. And that doesn't just mean you know, who is the CEO of a charity, it means who is the volunteer manager, who is the leader of volunteers. And it trickles down all the way into who is your board chair, who are running your committees, mm -hmm. who are the volunteers on the front line. And so it's this work is this intentional shift away from that. And it's the seeking of having the voices of these people like, like me. And it, and it, and I experience privilege in many of my social identities, but in some ways I don't. But how do you have these voices that have historically been excluded? How do you create a way for them to carry weight at tables where decisions are made? And when you commit to doing this work, it also then fosters the creation of safe spaces where volunteer management professionals, 
where volunteers and the communities that are being served, which really should be at the center of everything. Yeah. You know, how do you put those communities at the center so that we can co-conspire together, so that we can work collabor collaboratively and co-create, you know, some sustainable systematic change together. That That's what it is for me. And the way that I experience often is let's talk about definitions or let's talk about the history. Let's talk about what's happened. And for me, it's let's talk about what has to happen. I absolutely agree with you. And I that future focus is is so important. So why, with an eye to the future and, and less to the past, why do you think these issues are so important to our work as volunteer engagement professionals today in 2021 and looking to the future? You know, the majority of us as volunteer management professionals are working for uh, charities, NGOs, not-for-profits, wherever we, wherever we may be around the world. And th there's, a, there's a few reasons why, to me, the work is important. So from a systemic level, what we're trying to do is we're trying to move this charitable mindset away from this, like, learned helplessness that we have, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. which I see pervasive, even in the way we talk about our profession, even the way we talk about ourselves, right? we have to move away from that learned helplessness. We have to move away from that rhetoric, you know, around disparity and need around the charity being in disparity, the charity being in need, because it's not about that. It's about the communities who are in need and the communities that need to be served. I know as volunteer management pro professionals, like we have great privilege and we have great power in the, in the resources that we have access to, which is people's time, people's talent we have a lot of uh, power and I often hear people in our field talk about how we have no power, how we have no mm. voice. We have a ton of power. We have a ton of voice. We have to acknowledge it and sit in it and use it strategically. You know, we have a great position to be able to end things like cyclical poverty and divert the talents of volunteers away from things like bake sales and one day events to tangible advocacy and impact. I can tell you, Rob, that as a, as a volunteer myself, yeah. I've only ever been asked twice in probably over the 75 different volunteer roles I've had to write to a minister in government or to read something around advocacy. A charity um, has only ever asked me twice to do that. And I remember when being asked that after going and doing some volunteer work, I got, got a follow-up email with a really lovely thank you. And that the next ask was, now that you know a little bit about us, here's how you can really impact some change nice. would you write to x who's brought this bill to the table would you sign this petition would you read a little bit more about this community and being invited to understand a community that had not been prioritized and and i don't like saying communities at risk or underprivileged yeah. nobody's underprivileged people are underprioritized you know and being asked to represent or to speak on behalf of or to advocate for a community it engaged me in a very different way. It made me think about systems in a different way. It made me think about elected officials in a different way. And I, you know, one of the things I realized that I wasn't doing in my practice as a volunteer engagement professional is I wasn't engaging people in that way. I wasn't actually inviting them to understand the issues that made my charity even, you know, even have to exist in the first place. The other reason I think that the, ED, the EDI work is so important is because 
we have a ton of people in our industry that have unexamined unearned privilege and yeah. it's it's just a reality how our systems have set up who's been able to get into certain positions uh, who has awards named after them for example there is a ton of unexamined unearned privilege and when that privilege is unexamined and unearned there is a real disconnect from the communities that we're serving i'll give you an example i love the work that you're doing with engage and yeah and one of the things that i really like is usually journals are very one way right like the information yeah. is out there you go and access it but i love that there's this real intentional um, effort being put into engaging with the engage audience mm -hmm. and there was a question that you put out i think it was like what what do we do wednesdays is that what it's called yeah what, what would you do wednesdays are the kind of ethical discussions that that Aaron spinks leading on yeah and the question was something along the lines of like do you let your volunteers be friends with you on facebook yeah yeah and i read the answers and i i was very measured and like my response and then I, I i crafted a response i deleted it i crafted a response and i deleted it but the answers to me were really shocking the unexamined unearned privilege comes when you're working with communities who are under prioritized and you can leave at five o'clock or at the end of the day, whenever your end of your day is, and you don't have to engage with that community anymore. You can be your work. Mm -hmm. I can be work FISA and I can be non-work FISA, mm -hmm. but the communities that I serve and the, the purpose for me being employed are those communities. They don't get that opportunity and they don't get that choice. And that to me is the real disconnect, right? There's, there, there are those of us who do this work professionally, but you know, we engage with communities, we have resources that communities need, we have privilege and power within these communities. And then we say things like, no, work is work and home is home. Mm -hmm. And it, that's just not how community works. People don't just shut off at five o'clock, right? Yeah. But when you're working in charity and when you're working with community, it's a privilege just to be able to say that. And it's a privilege to be able to say, I'm going to disconnect from this, this work right now. The pandemic is something that has really amplified that for me because working from home, the different ways in which people access me now, which, you know, used to be in person at my office or through a training. Now it's over zoom in my house. We just talked about how I'm doing this podcast from a bathroom, people who are hungry, people who are underhoused, people who are new to Canada, they don't get to turn it off the way I get to turn it off. Yeah you know, at the end of the day. So that's that unexamined and that unearned privilege is something that we really need to look out. So it's problematic to me when someone's not connected or invested in their work or they're indifferent at the end of the day or they're indifferent to the outcome and they're only working on that outcome in the hours that they're paid to work on that outcome. That privilege thing's really interesting. I, I find it endlessly fascinating over the, the last year when, you know, let's be honest, these issues have really come to the fore for a lot of organizations, institutions, a lot of bodies and individuals across our sector since the murder of George Floyd, also in the Twin Cities last mm -hmm. year, and Breonna Taylor and all of these kind of high profile cases. And that word privilege, I think, is one of the ones that gets so many people stuck for some reason, because yeah. they kind of feel that it implies that they've got it easy and they've got it, you know, whether it's because they're in a decent sized house so they've got good homeworking arrangements or because of the color of the skin or their gender or whatever else it may be and for some reason 
so many people seem to get really hung up on that rather than actually as a defensive mechanism rather than go oh actually you know maybe I do maybe I've never thought about that before and I do need to to check that I, I came across it this morning in an article here in the UK that was talking about the number of employers that are are shifting the workforce more and more to working from home when we come out of our restrictions under the pandemic this summer and the number of people that are going well don't do that don't do that we have you know we're in one bedroom apartments and we don't have arrangements for working from home and we can't afford to buy better broadband and we can't afford to and it and it's people right across the spectrum but there's just this assumption that that charities included are making that people have got access to all of these resources. And I think it's really important that we we check maybe a, some of us our initial kind of negative gut reactions of the word privilege and actually start to think about it in a bit more of a an intelligent and thought through way. Yep, I have those same reactions, right? I'm I'm cisgendered. I'm straight. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm in a relationship that's recognized by the government. I feel the same way, right? When I think about the privileges that other people don't have in the way that I do, I have that reaction too. It's natural. Yeah. Um, but it's about noticing it and then not making decisions or judgments based on it. Yeah. Then deciding what you're going to do with that information. How are you going to use that to, you know, how are you going to use that to inform how you structure your volunteer program or how, what, what are the questions that you ask? Like, what does it matter if someone's married or not? Yeah. What does it matter? Uh, their salutation that they use in their name, you know, sometimes just even asking people that can, can trigger some really uncomfortable things for them. Yeah. And there was a brilliant article. We keep coming back to Minnesota in this conversation, but I'm sure you've seen it. There was a brilliant article from the fabulous Lisa Joycelyn at Marva last year, which one, well, there were two articles, actually, one which was very eye-opening about how systemic racism does manifest itself in volunteer engagement. But the, the other one was about how so many of our kind of accepted best practices actually uh, run counter to yeah. the stated aspirations of many of us as individuals and organisations around EDI. And I, I've seen that for years. Just you used the term earlier about underprivileged people. And I've heard about uh, people refer to, you know, certain underrepresented groups in volunteering. And the kind of implicit assumption in there is it's their fault that they're underrepresented not that it's anything that we're not doing right to make sure that we engage those audiences. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's 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 a lot that we need to get to. I, the other thing I loved about what you were talking about there in thinking about these issues and why it's so important is the three different constituent groups, because I think which, which were community volunteers and, and kind of ourselves as a profession, actually, because I think mm-hmm. for me, when those EDI discussions come up in a volunteer management context, they're very often about the volunteers that they work with they're far less often about the community that our organization serves and even less often about equality diversity and inclusion in the profession of volunteer engagement as well which is as somebody who's traveled the world populated predominantly by white women Mm -hmm. from you know reasonable socioeconomic backgrounds by and large, I mean, I realize I'm generalizing there. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember that Carl Wilding, who was the chief exec of NCVO over here, was at a conference a few years ago, and he did this, this thing, there was about 150 people in the room, and he said, they were all volunteer managers, and he looked at the delegate list, and he said, do you realize there are more volunteer managers in this room called Allison than there are from 
black minority ethnic as the terminology at the time was backgrounds yeah and I think yeah. that was a real shocker for people to just realize that and and as a as a profession right you you really hit on yeah. something you know, as a profession where the majority of practitioners are middle-aged white women being led by and whose leaders in their organizations are middle-aged or older white men. Yeah. We have this discussion all the time about the EDI discussion really has boomed because we were talking about racial and anti-racist inequities, right? Absolutely. But in terms of like just sexism in general, yeah. right? When I hear people say, I don't have a seat at the table, nobody takes me seriously, there needs to be some real analysis done on what have women internalized, yeah. what biases have women internalized on their own, and I'm not blaming women, no. but there are situations for a woman where do you feel safe going to a man or have you been yeah. have it have you internalized you know that you defer authority to a man and oftentimes when I, I hear that all the time like we don't get the recognition we deserve we don't and I, I don't feel that way I really don't feel that way in my practice that mm. I don't feel like we don't get the recognition we deserve I feel like you ask for it you, you show your value you show your worth you communicate in a way that's strategic. You don't just show up and demand it and ask to be recognized. And I don't know if that's because that is, this is the skin that I live in and I've always had to try harder, get the better grade, do 10 extracurricular activities to get noticed where white girls that I work, that I grew up with did too, you know? I've always had, and that's, that is a trauma response to racism, right? It's to, to overdo things. And that's something that I, I recognize about myself, right? Is that I, I, I equate productivity and overproducing with my worth in the field and mm. through really great discussions um, with people who care about me, you know, they've kind of said like, you don't have to do all of it. How do you do all of it? Right. Yeah. And at the same time, I hear you don't have to do it all, but then I also hear we value you because you do it all. And that's really confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but that that type of individual self-examination is what's going to move this work forward, right? It's not your company and your organization saying you need to do this training, you need to do that. It's you and me having a conversation between the two of us. It's me, you know, everyday diversity is a value in my house. It can't just be a course that you check off or something that you do. It has to be a lived value. So much so to the point in our house, my kids are four and five and they'll pick out why is everybody on this show white, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, how come everybody on this show is wearing X? Like they're able to start picking up on those nuances now. That is an everyday lived value. And that individual effort and that individual self-examination of all your privileges and non-privileges is what's going to help you shift this work. Because if you can make it personal, if you have proximity to certain issues, it, it gives you a different incentive and motivation and the level of caring to want to change the way that things are. I know right at the start, you were quite rightly saying, you know, we need to look to the future and we need to look to how we improve. But I, I do want to take a little bit of a look back because I think it's important to learn lessons from kind of where we've got things wrong in the past. And why do you think our field, our profession in particular, has made so little progress on these issues for so long? I mean, I can remember when I started work in the 
mid-1990s, and I've got them on the bookcase behind me in the office where I'm recording this, a series of pamphlets that the then National Centre for Volunteering produced around increasing diversity and volunteer engagement by involving more volunteers from the UK black community, all, all kinds of different kind of ways in which people could diversify. And I could pick those up. They were probably written about 1996, 97. I could pick those up now and they would be just as relevant now, mm-hmm. 24, 25 years on, as they were back then. So you could argue kind of nothing's happened. Is it because we've tended to look at this from when we have looked at it from an institutional rather than a personal or individual perspective? What do you think's kind of lying at the heart of that? I don't think it's just one thing, right? In westernized countries and colonized countries, Mm. volunteerism is based on values of individualism and and recognition, right? So so right away, you are valuing one over the community, Mm. right? So that's that's one thing. The the way volunteerism is set up in the way that we institutionalize it and the way that we have it. And I say in westernized countries because I see it being done differently elsewhere and more effectively, um, those values of individualism and recognition are problematic, right? Yeah. Every time I see a database question, like what's the, what volunteer database software are you looking for? Mm-hmm. Everyone is talking about, well, this one counts this and this one counts that. And it's all centered on the individualism and recognition of a volunteer. Yeah. So what we call charity um, and what we say is giving back. When you say you're giving back, you have to acknowledge something has been taken. Yeah. Right? And we put so much value on giving back and we don't question a volunteer. When a volunteer says to me, like, I want to give back, why do you want to give back? And there's, you know, two different answers that come out of that. I want to give back because I want to feel good about myself. I want to give back to the community. And then there's a second answer, which to me is the one I'm just more comfortable with, which is because this is a community that gave to me, mm-hmm. right? I am a mom of a, of a preemie. My son was born at 27 weeks. The NICU community, the, the, the community of preemie parents has given me so much, I want to give back to them, is very different from, I have so much, I want to give back. You have to examine, how, did, how is it that you got to have so much and somebody got to have so little? Are you giving back because somebody else was taken from? And our, our charities are based around that, right? Like yeah. they're based around that. Whereas in so many indigenous cultures, um, so many non-Abrahamic faiths, that's called mutual aid, right? Yeah. That's called sharing. That's called equitable disbursement. And I mean, something that this pandemic has highlighted, and if people are not noticing this, this is your, this is a 100% an example of your privilege. But if you are not noticing how effective mutual aid organizations have been throughout this pandemic and if you aren't recognizing the fact that while so many of us had to shut our doors and aren't able to provide service because we're worried about our brand we're worried Mm -hmm. about the legal implications we're worried about our insurance coverage we're basically worried about the charity and not the community the community will provide for itself Mm -hmm. and the community is providing for itself I can't tell you countless numbers of ways I've been involved in the past 14, 15 months of this pandemic in mutual aid versus formal volunteering, where I didn't have to go through an interview or a police check. I didn't have to prove why I needed to be there. Um, I don't need to be celebrated. I don't need to be recognized. There's no parties for the work that I do. You just do the work that needs to get done. 
and you're not lauded as a superhero. And, and I think another reason why we've made so little progress is this ideology of volunteers being superheroes and people who they're helping being described as poor, underprivileged, at risk, underserved, having nothing, right? We center poverty as a moral failing and we see those people who are helping as saviors. So, you know, another reason that I think that so little progress has been made, and I've talked about these, these values of individualism and recognition when it comes to volunteering is that, and I know you're, I know you have talked a lot about how important language is, right? But mm. we, in Western culture, poverty is centered as a moral failing. And then yep. those people who help those who are poor or in need or at risk or underserved, all these words that we use to describe living, breathing, beautiful, joyful people, the people who help are seen as saviors and selfless and superheroes, basically, right? So we have the superhero and then we have the person that has nothing and in need. And so we create this dynamic and we create this narrative of, of how important and how valued the volunteer is, right? And I think that's just another reason why, because we create this dynamic where the volunteer has now become the savior, where the, and that perpetuates the role of the charity as the savior, as the staff within the charity as the savior. So that that iteration of volunteerism, it's it's like this complicit, complacent way of looking at people who lack equitable access to resources. And then at the same time, this like, ah, this exhalation for those people who get their self-esteem and their identity and they get their kicks off of investing X amount of hours for recognition. Like yeah. that's so wrong. <laughs> yeah. And if you can't, if you can't see that, and if you can't see your role in perpetuating that therein is a huge problem. I'm really pleased you brought up that point about mutual aid there, because for me, that mutual aid versus whether we want to call it formal or traditional volunteering Mm -hmm. and the divergence of those that we've seen over the last year and then the, the confluence as they come back together is, for me, going to be one of the defining issues that leaders of volunteer engagement are going to face in the next year or two. I mean, I, I kind of, I think of it like the, the kind of the box in the middle of a room, and in that box was everything that was kind of neat and tidy about volunteering in most organisations before COVID. And when COVID came along and volunteer managers got furloughed, there was nobody to look after the box anymore. And it kind of opened up and all of this wonderful community volunteering happened without volunteer managers and all of this kind of stuff. And rather than celebrate that and encourage it, I think what a lot of organizations, and I'm at pains to say organizations, but it's probably some volunteer managers are trying to do as well, mm -hmm. is put everything neatly back in the box again. Yep. And for me, this is where issues of EDI are really important because as you say it absolutely those those mutual aid versus formal western historic constructs of volunteering are inherent in the way that we think about equality diversity and inclusion EDI is not some kind of modular bolt-on that we stick into our program it's fundamental in how we conceive of volunteering and think about doing things and the piece that Erin and I did for Engage just 15th of April this year mm -hmm. about the way that organizations are thinking about restarting activity post pandemic and how much of that is going to be digital and how much of that is going to be remote without even entertaining the idea that maybe volunteers, certain volunteers can't engage in digital or can't engage in remote. 
And if we don't see EDI as fundamental to everything that we do, we just see it as a bolt-on, then we're always going to keep making mistakes. I mean, we're always going to make mistakes, but we're never going to get this right because we just don't see it as a fundamental part of how we go about doing our work. And that, I mean, we just talked about like, how did we get here? And if we think yeah. about, okay, where do we go from here? What needs to change? Yeah. You've like, that's exactly it, right? Like we have to be future focused. We have to yeah. think, we have to think that way. There's two things for me that really stand out. And, and the one thing I want to acknowledge, Rob, is that you invited me to have this conversation and I had a choice, yes or no. Mm -hmm. You're not the only person that's invited me to have this conversation. I decided to say yes, because you are safe for me, right? You're somebody that I feel I can, I can speak to, I feel safe around you. There are people who contact me to say, and you know, I, I, I want to get better and I want to understand, can you do this? Can you put yourself at risk? Can you re-traumatize yourself? That's what I'm hearing. That's not what they're mm. saying, but can you re-traumatize yourself? Can you put yourself at risk um, so that I can get something out of it, right? There is a kind of uh, lack of regard and lack of respect for people's boundaries when it comes mm -hmm. to this work, right? Mm -hmm. um, I remember, you know, one of my my really good friends in the field saying to me when I had told her after George Floyd was murdered, I had told her about a heartbreaking conversation I'd had with my kids around it, and she was just like, "I need to, I need to do more. I need to learn more. I'm going to start a book club." And in my mind, I was like, "When has a book club ever solved anything, right?" And <laughs> Her heart, her heart was that she wanted me to stop hurting and yeah. she wanted to do something to stop hurting. But her life experience was, this is how I learn. And I think that people need to understand that if we want to go forward with this, it's not about book clubs. Yeah. Um, it's not about asking people who are in communities that are not prioritized or in communities that have been marginalized. It's not about them teaching you how to do the work. It's about you doing the work. So it's about each individual recognizing and acknowledging what they need to learn and doing it on their own and doing it every day for a long period of time. Like for me, this is something I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. There are mm -hmm. communities that I don't have proximity to, that I cannot be an ally to, um, that I need to learn more about. And then the other thing is, is you do it without expectation for reward, right? Yeah. So I don't want to hear about your activism. I don't want to hear that you had an aha moment. I don't want to hear people saying that you're brave because you read a book. To me, that's really insulting. You should be yeah. doing that anyways. I don't get yeah. bravery points for facing microaggressions every single day. So there also needs to be a little bit of humility in this work and not about making it public, not about looking for accolades for being human and for acknowledging that other people are human. So there really needs to be like, if you want to call yourself a leader in volunteer engagement, then you need to take responsibility for your own learning. And it's not just your own learning at work. It's your own learning as a human being in this world, sharing it with everybody else. It's, it's your learning when you're being paid and it's your learning when you're not being paid. It's your learning and you're teaching as a parent, as a community member, as a son or a daughter around family dinner tables, you need to carry those same values that you're espousing at work. You need to carry them at the grocery store. You need to carry them at family gatherings, you know, in the sports clubs that you're part of. When you travel, those, that, that is what it means when you say that if you want to claim that diversity is your val a value of yours, it has to be a lived value 
all the time. Yeah. Just like you say, honesty is a value. It's not just a value when you're getting paid. It's your value throughout your whole whole life, throughout how you conduct your whole day. There's also this idea, you know, if we want to think about how can we change this in the future, I hear people say like, you know, the field of volunteer management, we're just too nice. And I don't think we're just too nice. We're just too complacent. And we're just too scared, some of us, or don't have the language or haven't had the conversations. And we aren't sure how to move this work forward because it's not easy. There's no roadmap. It's difficult. And so we just revert to being nice. And as me in this field for 21 years, I don't experience it as the nicest place. You know, it's not always a safe space for me. I just told you about being invited to come and speak and then being talked to as somebody that works in a hotel, yeah. which is which is an employed person. But the way that I was spoken to was was really insulting. So it's not always a nice place to work. And I've, you know, I've questioned it many times, like, Am I safe in this space? You know, do I want to continue doing this work where, where it's harmful, where I face these microaggressions every day, where you physically feel them? You know, it, like people say, it's like a thousand paper cuts. It really is. You know, like I do get headaches and stomach pains and things like that because I love doing this work. And that's all individual. So what needs to change is that people need to recognize and acknowledge their own complicity, their own privilege, their own place. You don't need to feel ashamed about it. You don't need to feel embarrassed about it. You just need to be able to recognize it and then understand where you may have acted on that and that's bias. And then what are you going to do about it going forward? Where do you want to find more information? Oftentimes people will say like, Faiza, what's it like to be a person of color? Or can you tell me a little bit about X? And like, my answer is like, just Google it. Like, why do I have to tell you, right? Like there's a whole world of knowledge out there. Google it and let me feel safe and don't re-traumatize me for your individual learning. And then don't pat yourself on the back because you did the work. You should have been doing it anyway. And let's face it, it's not like in the last year there aren't a shortage of books and articles and podcasts, some specific to our field and some absolutely just for public consumption on being anti-racist and you know there, there isn't a shortage of resources out there yeah. is what i'm saying there's no real excuse for people not to engage Pfizer, look i always value the time that you and i get to talk whether it's uh, online like this or in the good old days which hopefully will return before too long face to face i i learn so much from you and your perspectives on things and i was humbled when you said that you accepted because you feel that you're in a safe space when you're talking to me. And and I would reflect that back that I equally feel safe talking about these issues with you. And even though maybe about half a dozen people might listen to this podcast uh, and find something valuable (laughs) out of it, I've certainly found it incredibly valuable, as I always do talking with you today. And I thank you so much for your time. How can people find out more about you and how can they get in touch with you if they're interested in finding out more about Pfizer or uh, your work with CCVA? Yeah, just find me on LinkedIn and I'm always happy to hear from people and to, to tell people more about the certification and, you know, how you can advance your practice in volunteer management. And thank you, Rob, for um, this conversation, even if nobody listens to it, like this is this is our diversity practice for today. 
Yeah. Um, and the and our little bit of work that we did together here today. Awesome. And hopefully we'll be able to share a bowl of chicken feet again before too long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, you, if you're thinking, listening to this, thinking Pfizer doesn't sound entirely sure, that's because I think it's pretty safe to say that whenever Pfizer, Erin and I speak, it, we're now, neither of us are really particularly sure if we enjoyed the chicken feet even eight years on. So um, <laughs> it's clearly one of those things that's got to be experienced to be, uh, to be decided if you like it or not. Pfizer, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. 